Part three of Chapter one of Animal Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Animal Ghosts by Elliot O'Donnell. Part three, Chapter one the headless cat of number blank lower seedley road seedley manchester it was related to me by mr robert dane who was at one time a tenant of number blank lower seedley road seedley i quote it as nearly as possible in his words thus when we my wife and i took number blank lower seedley road no possibility of the place being haunted crossed our minds indeed ghosts were the very last things we reckoned on as neither of us had the slightest belief in them like the generality of solicitors i am stodgy and unimaginative whilst my wife is the most practical and matter-of-fact little woman you would meet in a day's march nor was there anything about the house that in any way suggested the superphysical. It was airy and light, no dark corners or sinister staircases, and equipped throughout with all modern conveniences. We began our lease in June, the hottest June, I remember, and nothing occurred to disturb us till October. It happened then in this wise. I will quote from my diary monday october eleventh dick that is my brother-in-law and i at eleven o'clock p m were sitting smoking and chatting together in the study all the rest of the household had gone to bed we had no light in the room as dick had a headache save the fire and that had burned so low that its feeble glimmering scarcely enabled us to see each other's face after a space of sudden and thoughtful silence, Dick took the stump of a cigar from his lips and threw it in the grate, where for a few moments it lay glowing in the gloom. Jack, he said, you will think me mad, but there is something deuced queer about this room tonight, something in the atmosphere I cannot define, but which I have never felt here, or indeed anywhere before look at that cigar end look i did so and received a shock what i saw was certainly not the stump dick had in his mouth but an eye a large red and lurid eye that looked up at us with an expression of the utmost hate dick raised the shovel and struck at it but without effect it still glared at us a great horror then seized us and unable to remove our gaze from the hellish thing we sat glued to our chairs staring at it the state of affairs lasted till the clock in the hall outside struck twelve when the eye suddenly vanished and we both felt as if some intensely evil influence had been suddenly removed dick did not like the idea of sleeping alone and asked if he might keep the electric light on in his room all night tremendous extravagance but under the circumstances excusable i confessed i devoutly wished it was morning tuesday october twelfth i was awakened at eleven thirty p m by delilah saying to me oh edward 
there have been such dreadful noises on the landing, just as if a cat were being worried to death by dogs. Hark! There it is again! And as she spoke, from apparently just outside the door, came a series of loud screeches, accompanied by savage growls and snarls. Not knowing what to make of it, as we had no animals of our own in the house, but concluding that a door or window having been left open, a dog and cat had got in from outside, I lit a candle and opened the bedroom door. Instantly, the sounds ceased, and there was dead silent, and although I searched everywhere, not a vestige of any animal was to be seen. Moreover, all the doors leading into the garden were shut and locked, and the windows closed. Not wishing to frighten Delilah, I laughingly assured her the cat, a black tom, was all right, that it was sitting on the roof of the summer house, looking none the worse for its treatment, and that I had sent the dog, a terrier, flying out of the gate with a well-deserved kick. I explained it was my fault about the front door being left open. My brain had been a bit overstrained through excessive work, and asked her on no account to blame the servants. I grow alarmed at times when I realize how easy lawyering makes lying. Friday, October 21st. On my way to bed last night, I encountered a rush of icy cold air at the first bend of the staircase. The candle flared up, a bright blue flame, and went out. Something, an animal of sorts, came tearing down the stairs past me, and on peering over the banisters, I saw looking up at me from the well of darkness beneath, two big red eyes, the counterparts of the one Dick and I had seen on October 11th. I threw a matchbox at them, but without effect. It was only when I switched on the electric light that they disappeared. I searched the house most carefully, but there were no signs of any animal. Joined Delilah, feeling nervous and henpecky. Monday, November 7th. Tom and Mabel came running into Delilah's room in a great state of excitement after tea today. Mother, they cried, mother, do come. Some horrid dog has got a cat in the spare room and is tearing it to pieces. Delilah, who was mending my socks at the time, flung them anywhere and springing to her feet, flew to the spare room. The door was shut but proceeding from within was the most appalling pandemonium of screeches and snarls, just as if some dog had got a hold of a cat by the neck and was shaking it to death. Delilah swung open the door and rushed in. The room was empty, not a trace of dog or cat anywhere, and the sounds ceased. On my return home, Delilah met me in the garden. Jack, she said, I have probed the mystery at last. The house is haunted. We must leave. Saturday, November 12th. Sublet house to James Barstow. Retired oil merchant today. He comes in on the 30th. Hope he'll like it. Tuesday, November 15th. Cook left today. I've no fault to find with you, Mum she condescendingly explained to delilah it's not you nor the children nor the food it's the noises at night screeches outside my door which sound like a cat 
but which I know can't be a cat, as there is no cat in the house. This morning, Mum, shortly after the clock struck two, things came to a climax. Hearing something in the corner, and wondering if it was a mouse, I ain't a bit afraid of mice, Mum. I sat up in bed, and was getting ready to strike a light. The matchbox was in my hand, when something heavy sprang right on top of me, and gave a loud growl in my ear. That finished me, Mum. I fainted. When I came to myself, I was too frightened to stir, but lay with my head under the blankets till it was time to get up. I then searched everywhere, but there was no sign of any dog, and as the door was locked, there was no possibility of any dog having got in during the night. Mum, I wouldn't go through what I suffered again for fifty pounds. I've got palpitations even now, and I would rather go without my month's wages than to sleep in that room another night. Delilah paid her up to date, and she went directly after tea. Friday, November 18th. As I was coming out of the bathroom at 11 p.m., something fell into the bath with a loud splash. I turned to see what it was. There was nothing there. I ran up the stairs to bed three steps at a time. Sunday, November 20th. Went to church in the morning and heard the usual Oxford drawl. On the way back, I was pondering over the sermon and wishing I could contort the law as successfully as Parsons contort the scriptures, when Dot, she is six today, came running up to me with a very scared expression in her eyes. Father, she cried, plucking me by the sleeve, do hurry up mother is very ill full of dreadful anticipations i tore home and on arriving found delilah lying on the sofa in a violent fit of hysterics it was fully an hour before she recovered sufficiently to tell me what had happened her account runs thus after you went to church she began i made the custard pudding jelly and blancmange for dinner heard the children their collects and had just sat down with the intention of writing a letter to mother when i heard a very pathetic mew coming so i thought from under the sofa thinking it was some stray cat that had got in through one of the windows i tried to entice it out by calling puss puss and making the usual silly noise people do on such occasions no cat coming out and the mewing still continuing i knelt down and peered under the sofa there was no cat there had it been night i should have been very much afraid but i could scarcely reconcile myself to the idea of ghosts with the room filled with sunshine resuming my seat i went on with my writing but not for long the mewing grew nearer i distinctly heard something crawl out from under the sofa there was then a pause during which you could have heard the proverbial pin fall and then something sprang upon me and dug its claws into my knees i looked down and to my horror and distress perceived standing on its hind legs pawing my clothes a large tabby cat without a head the neck terminating in a mangled stump the sight so appalled me that i don't know what happened but nurse and the children came in and found me lying on the floor in hysterics 
Can't we leave the house at once? Wednesday, November 30th. Left number blank, Lower Seedley Road, at 2 p.m. Had an awful scurry to get things packed in time, and dread opening certain of the packing cases, lest we shall find all the crockery smashed. Just as we were starting, Delilah cried out that she had left her reticule behind, and I was dispatched in search of it. I searched everywhere, till I was worn out, for I know what Delilah is, and was leaving the premises in full anticipation of being sent back again, when there was a loud commotion in the hall, just as if a dog had suddenly pounced on a cat, and the next moment a large tabby, with the head hewn away as Delilah had described, rushed up to me and tried to spring on my shoulders. At this juncture, one of the servants cautiously opened the hall door from without and informed me I was wanted. The cat instantly vanished, and, on my reaching the carriage in a state of breathless haste and trepidation, Delilah told me she had found her reticule. She had been sitting on it all the time. In a subsequent note in his diary, a year or so later, Mr. Dane says, after innumerable inquiries regarding the history of number blank lower seedley road prior to our inhabiting it i have at length elicited the fact that twelve years ago a mr and mrs barlow lived there they had one son arthur whom they spoilt in the most outrageous fashion even to the extent of encouraging him in acts of cruelty to afford him amusement they used to buy rats for his dog a fox terrier to worry and on one occasion procured a stray cat which the servants afterwards declared was mangled in the most shocking manner before being finally destroyed by arthur here then in my opinion is a very feasible explanation for the hauntings the phenomenon seen was the phantasm of the poor tortured cat for if human tragedies are reenacted by ghosts why not animal tragedies too it is absurd to suppose man has the monopoly of soul or spirit. The Cat on the Post In her Ghosts and Family Legends, Mrs. Crow narrates the following case of a haunting by the phantom of a cat. After the doctor's story, I fear mine will appear too trifling, said Mrs. M., but as it is the only circumstance of the kind that ever happens to myself, I prefer giving it you to any of the many stories I have heard. About fifteen years ago I was staying with some friends at a magnificent old seat in Yorkshire, and our host, being very much crippled with the gout, was in the habit of driving about the park and neighborhood in a low pony phaeton on which occasions i often accompanied him one of our favorite excursions was to the ruins of an old abbey just beyond the park and we generally returned by a remarkably pretty rural lane leading to the village or rather the small town of c one fine summer's evening we had just entered this lane when seeing the hedges full of wild flowers i asked my friend to let me alight and gather some i walked before the carriage picking honeysuckles and roses as i went along till i came to a gate that led into a field 
It was a common country gate, with a post on each side, and on one of these posts sat a large white cat, the finest animal of the kind I had ever seen. And as I have a weakness for cats, I stopped to admire this sleek, fat puss, looking so wonderfully comfortable in a very uncomfortable position, the top of the post, on which it was sitting, with its feet doubled up under it, being out of all proportion to its body, for no Angola ever rivaled it in size. "'Come on, gently,' I called to my friend. "'Here's such a magnificent cat!' For I feared the approach of the Phaeton would startle it away before he had seen it. "'Where?' said he, pulling up his horse opposite the gate. "'There,' said I, pointing to the post. "'Isn't he a beauty? I wonder if it would let me stroke it.' "'I see no cat,' said he. "'There, on the post,' said I. But he declared he saw nothing, though Puss sat there in perfect composure during this colloquy. "'Don't you see the cat, James?' said I, in great perplexity to the groom. "'Yes, ma'am, a large white cat on that post.' I thought my friend must be joking or losing his eyesight, and I approached the cat, intending to take it in my arms and carry it to the carriage. But as I drew near, she jumped off the post, which was natural enough. But to my surprise, she jumped into nothing. As she jumped, she disappeared. No cat in the field, none in the lane, none in the ditch. "'Where did she go, James?' "'I don't know, ma'am. I can't see her,' said the groom, standing up in his seat, looking all around. I was quite bewildered, but still I had no glimmering of the truth. And when I got into the carriage again, my friend said he thought I and James were dreaming, and I retorted that I thought he must be going blind.' I had a commission to execute as we passed through the town, and I alighted for that purpose at the little haberdasher's, and while they were serving me, I mentioned that I had seen a remarkably beautiful cat sitting on a gate in the lane, and asked if they could tell me who it belonged to, adding it was the largest cat I ever saw. The owners of the shop, and two women who were making purchases, suspended their proceedings, looked at each other, and then looked at me, evidently very much surprised. "'Was it a white cat, ma'am?' said the mistress. "'Yes, a white cat, a beautiful creature, and—' "'Bless me!' cried two or three. "'The lady's seen the white cat of sea. It hasn't been seen these twenty years.' "'Master wishes to know if you'll soon be done, ma'am. "'The pony is getting restless,' said James. "'Of course, I hurried out and got into the carriage, "'telling my friend that the cat was well known to the people at sea "'and that it was twenty years old. "'In those days, I believe, I never thought of ghosts, "'and least of all should have thought of the ghost of a cat.' But two evenings afterwards, as we were driving down the lane, I again saw the cat in the same position, and again my companion could not see it, though the groom did. 
I alighted immediately and went up to it. As I approached it, it turned its head and looked full towards me with its soft, mild eyes and a friendly expression like that of a loving dog. And then, without moving from the post, it began to fade gradually away as if it were a vapor till it had quite disappeared. All this the groom saw as well as myself, and now there could be no mistake as to what it was. A third time I saw it in broad daylight, and my curiosity awakened. I resolved to make further inquiries amongst the inhabitants of C, but before I had an opportunity of doing so, I was summoned away by the death of my eldest child, and I have never been in that part of the world since. However, I once mentioned the circumstance to a lady who was acquainted with that neighborhood, and she said she had heard of the white cat of C, but had never seen it. This is Mrs. M.'s account as related by Mrs. Crow, and after perusing the authoress's preface to the work, I am inclined to give it full credence. The Mystic Properties of Cat the most common forms of animal phenomena seen in haunted houses are undoubtedly those of cats. The number of places reported to me as being haunted by cats is almost incredible. In one street in Whitechapel, there are no less than four. This state of affairs may possibly be accounted for by the fact that cats, more than any other animals that live in houses, meet with sudden and unnatural ends, especially in the poorer districts, where the doctrine of kindness to animals has not yet made itself thoroughly felt. Now I am touching on the subject of cat ghosts. It may not be out of place to reproduce the following article of mine, entitled, Cats and the Unknown, which appeared in the Occult Review for December 1912. Since from all ages the cat has been closely associated with the supernatural, it is not surprising to learn that images and symbols of that animal figured in the temples of the sun and moon respectively in ancient Egypt. According to Horapolo, the cat was worshipped in the temple of Heliopolis, sacred to the sun, because the size of the pupil of the cat's eye is regulated by the height of the sun above the horizon. Other authorities suggest a rather more subtle, and in my opinion, more probable reason, namely that the link between the sun and the cat is not merely physical, but superphysical, that the cat is attracted to the sun not only because it loves warmth, but because the sun keeps off terrifying and antagonistic occult forces to the influences of which the cat, above all other animals, is specially susceptible. A fact fully recognized by the Egyptians who, to show their understanding and appreciation of this feline attachment, took care that whenever a temple was dedicated to the sun, an image or symbol of the cat was placed somewhere, well in evidence, within the precincts. To make this theory all the more probable, images and symbols of the cat were dedicated to the moon, the moon being universally regarded as the quintessence of everything supernatural, the very cockpit, in fact, of mystery and spookism. The nocturnal habits of the cat, 
its love of prowling about during moonlight hours, and the spectacle of its two round, gleaming eyes, may, of course, as Plutarch seems to have thought, have suggested to the Egyptians human influence and analogy, and thus the presence of its effigy in temples to Isis would be partially, at all events, accounted for. Though, as before, I am inclined to think there is another and rather more subtle reason. From endless experiments made in haunted houses, I have proved to my own satisfaction, at least, that the cat acts as a thoroughly reliable psychic barometer. The dog is sometimes unaware of the proximity of the unknown. When the ghost materializes, or in some other way demonstrates its advent, the dog occasionally is wholly undisturbed. The cat, never. I have never yet had a cat with me that has not shown the most obvious signs of terror and uneasiness both before and during a superphysical manifestation. Now, although I won't go so far as to say that ghostly demonstrations are actually dependent on the moon, that they occur only on nights when the moon is visible, experience has led me to believe that the moon most certainly does influence them, that moonlight nights are much more favorable to ghostly appearances than other nights. Hence, there is much in common between the moon and cats. The one influences, and the other is influenced by psychic phenomena, a fact that could scarcely have failed to be recognized by so keen observers of the occult as the ancient Egyptians. The presence of the cat's effigy in the temples of Isis might thus be explained. Over and over again we come across the cat in the land of the pharaohs. It seems to be inseparable from the esoteric side of Egyptian life. The goddess Bast is depicted with a cat's head, holding the sistrum, i.e., the symbol of the world's harmony in her hand. One of the most ancient symbols of the cat is to be found in the necropolis of Thebes, which contains the tomb of Hanna, who probably belonged to the 11th dynasty. There, Hannah is depicted standing erect, proud, and kingly, with his favorite cat, Borhaki. Borhaki, the picture of all things strange and psychic, and from one whom, one cannot help supposing, he may have chosen his occult inspiration at his feet. So sure were the Egyptians that the cat possessed a soul that they deemed it worthy of the same funeral rites they bestowed on man. Cats were embalmed, and innumerable cat mummies have been discovered in wooden coffins at Bustasis, Speos, Artemidos, and Thebes. When a cat died, the Egyptians shaved their eyebrows, not only to show grief at the loss of their loved one, but to avert subsequent misfortune. So long as a cat was in his house, the Egyptian felt safe from inimical supernatural influences. But if there was no cat in the house at night, then any undesirable from the occult world might visit him. Indeed, in such high esteem did the Egyptians hold the cat that they voluntarily incurred the gravest risks when its life was in peril. 
no one of them appreciated the cat and set a higher value on its mystic properties than the sultan a daher bebas who reigned in a d twelve sixty and has been compared with william of tripoli for his courage and with nero for his cruelty el daher bebas kept his palace swarming with cats and if we may give credence to tradition was seldom to be seen unaccompanied by one of these animals when he died he left the proceeds from the product of a garden to support his feline friends an example that found many subsequent imitators indeed until comparatively recently in cairo cats were regularly fed between noon and sunset in the outer court of the mechame in geneva rome and constantinople though cats were generally deemed to have souls and to possess psychic properties they were thought to derive them from evil sources and so strong was the prejudice against these unfortunate animals on this account that all through the middle ages we find them suffering such barbaric torture as only the perverted minds of a fanatical priest-ridden people could devise which treatment no doubt partly at all events accounts for the many palaces houses etc in those particular countries stated to have been haunted by the spirits of cats the devil was popularly supposed to appear in the shape of a black tom in preference to assuming any other guise and the bare fact of an old woman being seen once or twice with a black cat by her side was quite sufficient to earn for her the reputation of a witch it would be idle of course to expect people in these unmeditative times to believe there was ever even the remotest truth underlying these so-called fantastic suppositions of the past yet according to reliable testimony there are at the present moment many houses in england haunted by phantasms in the form of black cats of so sinister and hostile an appearance that one can only assume that unless they are the actual spirits of cats earthbound through cruel and vicious propensities they must be vice elementals i e spirits that have never inhabited any material body and which have either been generated by vicious thoughts or else have been attracted elsewhere to a spot by some crime or vicious act once perpetrated there vice elemental is merely the modern name for a fiend or demon apart from his luciferin qualities the cat was awarded all sorts of other qualities not the least important of which was its prophetic capability if a cat washed its face rainy weather was regarded as inevitable if a cat frolicked on the deck of a ship it was a sure sign of a storm whilst if a live ember fell on a cat an earthquake shock would be speedily felt cats too were reputed in the harbingers of good and bad fortune not a person in normandy but believed at one time that the spectacle of a tortoise-shell cat climbing a tree foretold death from accident and that a black cat crossing one's path in the moonlight presaged death from an epidemic two black cats viewed in the open between four and seven a m were generally believed to predict a death whereas a strange white cat heard mewing on a doorstep 
was loudly welcomed as the indication of an approaching marriage. According to tradition, one learns that cats were occasionally made use of in medicine to cure peasants of skin diseases, French sorcerers sprinkling the afflicted parts with three drops of blood drawn from the vein under a cat's tail, whilst blindness was treated by blowing into the patient's eyes three times a day, the dust made from the ashes of the head of a black cat that had been burned alive. Talking of burning cats reminded me of a horrible practice that was prevalent in the Hebrides as late as 1750. It was firmly believed there that cats were extraordinarily psychic, and that a sure means of getting in close touch with occult powers, and of obtaining from them the faculty of second sight, such as the cat possessed, was to offer up as sacrifices innumerable black cats. The process was very simple. A black cat was fastened to a spit before a slow fire, and as soon as the wretched animal was well roasted, another took its place victims being supplied without intermission until their vociferous screams brought to the scene a number of ghostly cats who joined in the chorus the desired climax was reached when an enormous phantom cat suddenly appeared and informed the operator that it was willing to grant him any one request if he would only refrain from his cruel persecution the operator at once demanded the faculty of second sight a power more highly prized in the Hebrides than any other, and the moment it was bestowed upon him, set free the remaining cats. Had all races been as barbarously disposed as these occult hungering westerners, cats would have soon become extinct. But it is comforting to think that in some parts of the world a very different value was set on their psychic properties. In various parts of Europe, some districts of England included, white cats were thought to attract benevolently disposed fairies, and a peasant would as soon have thought of cutting off his fingers, or otherwise maltreating himself, as being unkind to an animal of this species. In the fairy lore of half Europe, we have instances of luck bringing cats, each country producing its own version of Puss in Boots, Dame Mitchell and her cat, the white cat, Dick Whittington and his cat, etc. It is the same in Asia, too, for nowhere are such stories more prolific than in China and Persia. To sum up, in all climes and in all periods of past history, the cat was credited with many propensities that brought it into affinity and sympathy with the supernatural, or, to quote the up-to-date term, superphysical world, let us review the cat today and see to what extent this past regard of it is justified. Firstly, with respect to it as the harbinger of fortune, has a cat insight into the future? Can it presage wealth or death? I am inclined to believe that certain cats can, at all events, foresee the advent of the latter, and that they do this in the same manner as the shark, crow, owl, jackal, hyena, etc., by their abnormally developed sense of smell. My own, and other people's, experience has led me to believe that when a person is about to die, some kind of phantom, maybe a spirit whose special function it is to be present on such occasions, 
is in close proximity to the sick or injured one, waiting to escort his or her soul into the world of shadows, and that certain cats scent its approach. Therein, then, in this wonderful property of smell, lies one of the secrets to the cat's mysterious powers. It has the psychic faculty of scent, of scenting ghosts. Some people, too, have this faculty. In a recent murder case in the north of England, a rustic witness gave it in her evidence that she was sure a tragedy was about to happen because she smelt death in the house, and it made her very uneasy. Cats possessing this peculiarity are affected in a similar manner. They are uneasy. Before a death in a house, I have watched a cat show gradually increasing signs of uneasiness. It has moved from place to place, unable to settle in any one spot for any length of time, had frequent fits of shivering, gone to the door, sniffed the atmosphere, thrown back its head and mewed in a low, plaintive key, and shown the greatest reluctance to being alone in the dark. This faculty, possessed by certain cats, may in some measure explain certain of the superstitions respecting them. Take, for example, that of cats crossing one's path predicting death. The cat is drawn to the spot because it scents the phantom of death and cannot resist its magnetic attraction. From this, it does not follow that the person who sees the cat is going to die, but that death is overtaking someone associated with that person, and it is in connection with the latter that the spirit of the grave is present, employing as a medium of prognostication that the cat, which has been given the psychic faculty of smell, that it might be so used. But although I regard this theory as very feasible, I do not attribute to cats, with the same degree of certainty, the power to presage good fortune, simply because I have had no experience of it myself. Yet, adopting the same lines of argument, I see no reason why cats should not prognosticate good as well as evil. There may be phantoms representative of prosperity in just the same manner as there are those representative of death. They, too, may also have some distinguishing scent. Flowers have various odors, so why not spirits? And certain cats, i.e. white cats in particular, may be attracted by it. This becomes all the more probable when one considers how very impressionable the cat is, how very sensitive to kindness. There are some strangers with whom the cat will at once make friends, and others whom it will studiously avoid. Why? The explanation, I fancy, lies once more in the occult, in the cat's psychic faculty of smell. Kind people attract benevolently disposed phantoms, which bring with them an agreeably scented atmosphere that, in turn, attracts cats. The cat comes to one person because it knows by the smell of the atmosphere surrounding him or her that it has nothing to fear, that the person is essentially gentle and benignant. On the contrary, cruel people attract malevolent phantoms, distinguishable also to the cat by their smell, a smell typical of cruelty, often of homicidal lunacy. 
I have particularly noticed how cats have shrunk from the people who have afterwards become dangerously insane. Is this sense of smell, then, the keynote to the halo of mystery that has, for all times, surrounded the cat, that has led to its bitter persecution, that has made it the hero of fairy lore, the pet of old maids? I believe it is. I believe that in this psychic faculty of smell lies, in degree, the solution to the oft-asked riddle, why is the cat uncanny? Having then satisfied oneself on this point, namely that cats are in the possession of rare psychic properties, is it likely that the unknown powers which have so endowed them should withhold from them either souls or spirits? Is it not contrary to reason? instinct and observation to suppose that the many thoroughly material and grossly minded people people whose whole beings are steeped in money worship we see around us every day should have spirits and that pretty refined and artistic looking cats whose occult powers place them in the very closest connection with the superphysical should not monstrous the bare conception of such incongruity in the one case and such an omission in the other is inconceivable wholly irreconcilable with the notion of any other than a mummer of a creator a mere court fool of a god end of part three end of chapter one